Welcome to our continuing series in the book of 2 Peter. And today's title of the message is Destruction and Deliverance. Destruction and Deliverance from 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10a. So with that in mind, let us read the word of God this morning. If I can get it up here. All right. Starting with verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you, With false words, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued a righteous lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting, his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Church, let's pray. Dear Lord, our plea this morning is that your word would speak to us. And as we pray that, we're praying that you, Jesus, the living, living, risen, and exalted one, the living word would speak to us. We know from the Bible, we know from the book of Acts, Jesus, that you are still doing and you are still teaching even today as you're in heaven. So Lord, would you teach us this morning? Would you be our teacher using your word that you have preserved for us here and by your Holy Spirit? Would you teach us? And may you give us ears to hear this morning, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as you know, the school year has begun here in South Florida. But this school year has been, well, a little different, at least for our family. We are minus one student in our household. A couple of weeks ago, Cindy and I, my wife and I, had the opportunity to go and drop our oldest son off to college. And it was a, it was a good experience. It was a really good experience. It was good in many ways. But I wasn't quite prepared for some of the questions that would flood my mind as we're about to say goodbye 
to her oldest son on that last day. Now, I'd be the first to admit they were silly questions. They were silly thoughts. But, you know, I mean, for some reason, I just like, it was almost like a, a near panic moment. And here's some of the questions that I had. I'm just watching my son fill out his housing form on campus. And I thought, I don't think we've ever taught our son, like, how to sign his name. You know, Corey, smidgen, comma, junior. I mean, he's just CJ, right? And then I thought, you know, I don't even know if our, know, if our kids know how to write in cursive. I mean, this computer age, that's not, they don't even have real signatures. It just went downhill from there. Once it gets silly, but you get the point. And I was just talking to Cindy about it, and she said, yeah, I had similar thoughts, you know? Here we are dropping off our son in Louisville, Kentucky, the South. If you know, Cindy went to school in the Deep South, and well, there, there were quite a few cultural norms, expectations regarding etiquette and manners. And she was just telling me, yeah, I had the thought, I mean, have we raised him up with good manners? How about good table manners? How about, yes, ma'am, yes, sir. And, and how about his clothing, you know? Does he, it, it just goes on. It's like, you know, Louisville, Kentucky is a long cultural way from South Florida. So we just had all these silly questions in our mind. But there was one question that really was serious. One question that prevailed above the others. And it wasn't silly. And it was, this was the question. Have I prepared my son for the spiritual challenges that await him? Does he know how to apply the truth of the gospel? You see, I think this was Peter's concern in the letter that we're reading in 2 Peter. If you're with us, you may recall that Peter, he's about to go. He's about to depart. He's getting old, okay? He's about to say goodbye. And Peter in this letter is saying goodbye to his spiritual children, so to speak. He's saying goodbye to his students. And he wants them to be grounded in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows the challenges ahead, and he doesn't want them to be shaken. He doesn't want them to be taken off guard. It's as if in this letter, even in our text today, Peter is on campus and he's looking down the corridors and he sees some false teachers and professors that are seeking to lead his students astray. He sees some big time bullies on campus, all right? Some big time manipulators. And he's concerned rightfully concerned. Peter wants every student of his, every child, to be convinced that, yes, God is holy and God is just. He will judge those who deny Christ, the unrighteous. But he also wants them to know he will deliver those who are found in Christ, the righteous. And God is able to distinguish between the two. In other words, our theme for this morning, we'll put it up on the screen, is this. God's coming judgment is as certain as his deliverance. Oh, God's coming judgment is sure and certain, but so is God's coming deliverance. God's coming judgment upon the unrighteous and God's coming deliverance of the righteous. So really this text serves as a dual purpose, you could say. Indeed, this text this morning is a warning against false teachers and those who may follow them. 
in their path. But I want you to hear this. And this is important this morning, church. I believe this word to you and to me is also a word of hope for those who are distressed, for those who long for righteousness and justice. May you walk away this morning, oh believer, and know that God sees, God acts, he is acting, and he will act. Why? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us so. What is the gospel? Oh, it's who is the gospel. It is Jesus. It's his incarnation, God coming to earth as man. It's his perfect life, a life perfectly lived. It's his death on our behalf. It's his resurrection. It's his ascension. But don't forget, the gospel is also his return. And with that in mind, let's go to point one, God's coming judgment. In our text this morning, Peter wastes no time in identifying those upon whom God's judgment will come. It's those he's looking at down the hallway, so to speak. It's the false teachers. It's the big men on campus, all right? We read in verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master, Lord, who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Who are these teachers and what are they teaching? Well, from the context of this passage, it appears to be those who denied the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Al preached if you were here last week from chapter 1. If you recall, Peter says in chapter 1, verse 16, these words, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, these false teachers claim that all this talk about God's coming judgment was simply an elaborate myth, all right? Fanciful storytelling. Too many spooky campfire stories, all right? In denying Christ's return in this judgment, what Peter's doing in this text is likening these false teachers to the false prophets of old. If you've read the Old Testament, maybe you recall some of these false prophets. During the times when Israel or Judah were apostate, when they were going rogue, off the rails, and yet God's prophets were prophesying peace and favor and victory to all the itching ears, especially the kings of that day, when they should have been preaching and proclaiming God's word and warning of divine judgment and repentance. You see, Peter is likening these false teachers to those false prophets. And these false teachers, they're on campus. They're on campus. They're at school. And they're saying, listen, hey, party, live on, be free. There is no final exam. There's none. There's no day of reckoning. Listen, the administrators of the school, those apostles, they're just telling you about this final exam to scare you. It's all good, they say. It's all good. But perhaps what's most alarming about this text is notice when Peter says, there will be false teachers where? Among you. 
those in your midst, quick to tell you it's all good, even when it's not. See, these aren't just adjunct, you know, online professors of far. No, they will be among you. They're on your campus. They will be in your church. It is they, notice the verbiage, who will bring in what? Destructive heresies. That is, there will be those on the inside who are bringing in stories and false narratives, heresies from the outside. Those who will be inside, who will be taking the cultural mores and norms from outside and bringing them in to the church. These are the false teachers. Oh, they will profess a faith and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, but yet they will deny him in word and in deed. And this will lead to the ruin and their destruction. Look at verses 1b through 3 here. Picking it up in verse 1. <clears throat> Excuse me. Even denying the master who bought them, or who they professed bought them, bring it upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their what? Sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. I don't know if you caught the irony in all this. The false teachers will be judged because they're teaching that there is no future judgment. And because of that, they will be judged. And so will they lead themselves and others into immorality. Why would false teachers teach and bring in such a story, heresy, into the church to which they profess to belong? Why would others follow them? You know why? I think you've probably known in your heart whether you've articulated it or not. Because they do not want to be accountable. Whereas it says in verse 10, they despised authority. I just thought about that this week. Isn't that temptation? I mean, isn't that what we battle with today? You and I? Isn't it any different for us as a church? In our sinful state, aren't we tempted to make God into our own image? Aren't we tempted to craft and conform our theology so that we can live the way that we want to live without guilt? I think we're susceptible, church. We are. You see, for these false teachers, orthodoxy, in this case, the second coming of Christ, it was a disposable doctrine for them. Or at least it was open to reinterpretation. Since it didn't accord with their indulgence, their indulgent and unaccountable life in which they wanted to live. And in doing so, they blasphemed the way of truth. How? By their sensuality and greed. When you read sensuality, read lack of self-constraint, indulgence. I think he's talking about specifically sexual immorality. 
or as Peter says in verse 10, the lust of defiling passion. It's hard to think of a more relevant description, a more accurate description of the prevailing sins of our society today, sensuality and greed. And it's this sensuality and greed, you know what? That greases the pathway for such aberrant teaching that we're hearing about today, not just way out there, but yes, even in the church at large. The theology of the church at large is being twisted to conform to the sexual ethics of our day. How about marriage? The common refrain outside the church, and now even in some quarters inside the church at large, of those who profess to be part of the church, is this. It doesn't matter if you're gay or you're straight, as long as you what? Love one another. How about the notion of sex, and particularly sex outside of marriage today? It doesn't matter as long as there's what? Mutual consent. How about the gender confusion today, gender identity? It doesn't really matter how God made you. Only thing that matters is what you feel about yourself or which gender to which you identify. What is being discarded in this view of marriage, sexuality, and gender? What we're throwing out is the conception of marriage. The definition understanding of marriage is a monogamous covenant relationship between male and female that is to reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ. Going is a truth that we've been made, we've been born to reflect God in his image as male and female. In selfishness and greed, we will say whatever we want. We will exploit whoever we want. We will espouse whatever theology we want, right? To get whatever we want or whomever we want. And where does this lead us? To swift, i.e. eminent destruction. This destruction meaning spiritual and eternal ruin, i.e., he defines it elsewhere in this passage as condemnation, verse 3. And look at verse 3. This condemnation, it's not idle or asleep. That may be kind of an odd way of putting it, isn't it? In other words, they're teaching in their lives of these false teachers. Oh, their lives are productive. The life they're living, they are storing up wrath and judgment. And thus proving They were never saved, never redeemed, or bought by Christ's blood, despite their claims. And now that leads to verse 4. Verse 4 through 10, in the original language, Greek, is one long sentence. This is one power-packed sentence, with basically three examples of such destruction. I believe each of them prefigure or speak of the final judgment and condemnation to come. I wish I had time to fully unpack those. Maybe you don't. I don't know. But don't unpack these stories and these illusions. But I think the point is clear enough. God will not let the guilty go unpunished. They will come to ruin. But the righteous will be rescued. Because God is just. In verse 4, Peter speaks of the sinning angels who are kept in darkness until the day of judgment. 
This may be a reference to the primeval fall of Satan and his rebellious angels. Or, as many commentators believe, this could be a reference to extra-biblical literature. Perhaps even to Jude 5 and 6, which is then quoting this extra-biblical literature, which links these fallen angels to the sons of God who are mentioned in Genesis 6. These sons of God who possessed the men in order to mate with women to fulfill their sexual appetites. Could be. I don't know. But what is not clear, that may not be as clear, but what is clear is this, that God will not spare even fallen angels from his wrath and judgment. And neither will he spare ungodly men and women from his wrath. He destroyed the inhabitants of the ancient world in Noah's day, right? By flood. He destroyed the self-indulgent and the sexually immoral people of Sodom and Gomorrah by fire and sulfur, i.e. brimstone. The point is clear. Whatever punishment the ungodly may encounter on earth, it points to the final destruction and complete judgment, which will come when Christ returns. But don't miss this. Judgment, as we've been speaking about, church, it's a necessary part of the gospel. But it's not the whole story of the gospel or of God's justice. The good news, Jesus Christ tells us that through judgment comes salvation. The rescue of the righteous. And that leads to our second and our final point. God's coming deliverance. Who will be delivered? The righteous will be rescued. And what examples are given in the text? Well, two, right? Noah and Lot. Noah and Lot. Noah, who was delivered from the flood, and Lot, who was delivered from fire and ashes. But for those who know the story of Noah and Lot, perhaps you wonder, why were these two men called righteous? You ever thought about that? Why are they, why are they called the righteous? Now, if you know the story of the flood, most of you do, right? Noah certainly was courageous, certainly was persevering in building that ark. But you may remember something else about Noah as well. He may have had a drinking problem as well, at least on one occasion. We find him being a little too indulgent. Noah was far from being a perfect man. How about Lot? He's described here as that righteous man. Indeed, if you remember the story about Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot was gracious in that he took in two angels of the Lord who were visiting. He took them into his home. But you may also recall that when the ghastly men of Sodom come beating down at their door to molest them, he offered up his two virgin daughters. What's up with that? These were not perfect men. But you know what? These were men who God, by his grace, revealed himself to and his promises. And these were men who responded and believed and trusted in God and his word and promises. They weren't perfect, but they sought to live a life according to God's ways and according to his will. And how was their righteousness manifested? 
Well, at least speaking of Lot, Peter tells us plainly in verses 7 and 8. It was Lot's distress, his torment over wickedness and sin. Lot lived in Sodom. You think Miami's bad? Read up on Sodom. Lot lived among the people, and yet his soul was burdened. In fact, it says his soul was tormented over their lawless deeds. He was distraught by what he saw and by what he heard. When Lot, so to speak, looked down the school corridors, when he watched TV, when he went on the internet, when he engaged in social media, he could not make peace in his heart and soul with what he saw and heard. He could not condone it. He could not enter into it. And he could not conform his theology to what he was seeing and hearing around him. There was an opposition to sin and wickedness which battled in his heart and his soul. And he longed for God's kingdom come, for God's will be done. Friends, are you distressed when you look around at our country, our county? Are you distressed? Are you grieved by the presidential politics of our day? Are you even, to use the word here, verbiage from Second Peter, are you tortured by what you hear and by what you see? Now, I work out in the morning, and when I work out in the morning, I enjoy listening to a podcast, getting caught up on current news. And I admit it, I'm often, I'm often agitated. I know some people, my wife, they, they like, you know, fast, hard-pumping music to get, get them motivated in the morning. I just need to turn on a podcast, and I'm fired up, okay? <laughs> I'm moved, but not in a good way oftentimes. I mean, I am disturbed. I'm disturbed with a lot of things, but the sin and sensuality that I see around me, I'm disturbed by my reaction to it as well. I'm disturbed by what's going on out there, but I'm also disturbed by what's going on in here. It's all of the above. It's a battle. It's a battle in which I live and dwell, and I believe you do as well. But I want to see God's will done. I want to see God's will done in my heart. I want to see God's will done in my home. And I want to see God's will done in this country. I want his kingdom come, his will be done on earth, right where I live, where you live, and in heaven. Do, do you live with a stirring hunger in your heart for righteousness and justice? Is there a longing there to see God's ways and will be done in your own life? and the unbelievers that you interact with every day at work or in your neighborhood or when you watch or hear the latest news. Are you disturbed? Are you a little agitated? Are you distressed, even tormented? If so, good. That can be a good thing, church. In fact, if I'm reading my Bible right, welcome to Christianity. That's normal Christianity. That is righteous. That is the Christian life. You may be distressed, but hear this. Distress is different 
than despair. You know what despair is? It's distressed without any hope. Oh, I believe you can be distressed. You can hunger for the righteousness, the absence, you see, of righteousness around you in this world. Oh, church, but we're a people who are not to despair. We're a people who are not to be without hope. Where's the hope? Give me some hope, you say. Let's look at verse 9. Oh, it's beautiful. We've been through a lot in the first eight verses here. It's pretty dark. It's pretty grim. And then we read this, verse 9. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Let's just stop there. When it says God knows, you understand when it says God knows, it means, oh, God sees and God is committed to rescue the godly from trials. He will do it. But we got to do a little work here. What are the trials that Peter is referring to that we're to be rescued from? Certainly we encounter many, a variety of trials each and every day. But if we look at the preceding verses regarding Lot, I would suggest that Peter is not so much talking about outward suffering. It is true, we encounter suffering of all types, right? And certainly we've talked a lot about that at Palm Vista. Outward suffering, even at the hands of the wicked. But I believe that Peter most likely is speaking about the inner suffering and distress as we confront evil. That too is suffering, isn't it? We look around, we don't see God's righteousness. We see a people hell-bent, and we want to make things different. We want them to be different. We feel it. We feel it in our souls, and we grieve. That too is a trial. That too. No matter how bad it may seem, no matter how pervasive the wickedness around us, God will deliver the righteous. Certainly, from trials that you encounter now, but I believe it's pointing ultimately to our ultimate deliverance at the day of Christ's return. And I believe that interpretation fits the passage, let alone the second half of this verse, verse 9. Let's read that second half. Verse 9. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. I believe the day of judgment being referred to there is the day of our Lord's return. It's that which the false teachers denied. No one who is denied the Lord Jesus Christ will escape punishment. They will be held under punishment, it says. Some believe this means that the right unrighteous will be punished in a partial or in a preliminary way before the final day. That well may be the case. But what is sure is that they will be punished once and for all on the final day and condemned to hell apart from God's saving grace in Christ Jesus. In other words, church, there will be a final exam. And God's justice will be done And it will be seen to be done as well on that day. For those of you, the many here who have placed their saving faith in Christ Jesus, the judgment that you deserve has fallen on the son Jesus at the cross. 
but for those who have not placed their saving faith in Christ Jesus, who have lived in rejection and rebellion to him and have followed the ways of the flesh, the judgment will fall upon you. Either way, it will fall on Christ, who is your savior and sin bearer, or it will fall on you on that day. Either way, justice will be done. So if you're not yet a believer, this is a hard message. I get it. But it's also a message of grace that you're hearing it this morning, that you're not in ignorance. For indeed, this is a severe warning that you cannot sin with impunity, that God is holy and just. A day of reckoning is coming. And if that's you, you have not yet placed your saving faith in him, in Christ. This message, first and foremost, is a call to repent, to turn from your sin, turn from your rejection, your despising of authority, the one master who made you and redeemed you, and to come to him in saving faith. For the rest of you who are believers here today, I hope that you would take heart and take hope this morning. I believe this passage is written especially for you, to the Christian. That there is no hope in deliverance if there is no judgment. I repeat that. There is no hope in deliverance if there is no judgment. You see, destruction and deliverance go together. If there is no judgment, final judgment of the wicked, there will be no deliverance of the righteous in a world in which wicked will just continue to flourish. If there is no final judgment, wickedness will never end. There will be no rescue and there will be no deliverance. You see, Christian, when we preach the gospel to ourselves, we're right when we're preaching forgiveness. We've been forgiven and cleansed by Jesus' atoning work on the cross. But are you also preaching deliverance as well? A deliverance that will come when he returns. You see, we can fight sin, can't we? We can fight sin, including our own sin. And we can stand for righteousness in our families and in our communities. We can. We can stand for the rights of the unborn. We can advocate a biblical definition of marriage. We can fight pornography. We can rescue the sexually exploited. We can fight and work for biblical justice. Why? Because righteousness will prevail at the end. Oh, hear this. Please hear this. The gospel not only makes us righteous, the gospel is that which sustains our practice of righteousness. You catch that? It's the gospel which sustains our practice of righteousness because we know that God is holy and righteousness will be done. In other words, we are not fighting a losing battle here. We're not. We're not. doesn't matter what the cultural pundits say. It matters what God's promise says. And God's promise says that God's coming judgment is as certain and as sure as his deliverance. Church, this is Good news. This is the gospel.
go and live in that truth this week. With that, I'd like to invite the worship team to come on up. God is our refuge. Let's just be quiet here. Let me pray as we transition into one last song, affirming the deliverance and rescue of our Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Well, dear Lord, I know that many here, I suspect, would feel a little unsettled this morning. Unsettled when they look around them at what they hear and what they see. And Lord, if that is any person here this morning who is in Christ Jesus, I ask that you would settle them by your divine love and justice. That they would not fear. That they would labor to live for you in a fallen world of trials and temptations, knowing, God, that you are righteous and your righteousness will prevail. But would you do that to our hearts? Just calm us, settle us. Let the gospel, your first coming and your second, settle into our hearts this morning and give us a peace. Lord, I believe there can be a holy agitation and yet a peace that we can hunger for righteousness and yet anticipate and be filled. Lord, we live in the now and the not yet, the already and the not yet. Lord, we live in this time in which we wait your return, O Christ, and the consummation of all things. May we be able to anticipate that and labor knowing that day is coming, knowing that labor is not in vain, knowing that you distinguish between the unrighteous and the righteous. And may that bring us peace to our souls. I pray. And Lord, I pray as well for those perhaps who are a little too settled right now, feeling rather too comfortable in their ways, that God, you are not near, but you are far to them. Lord, that they're living according to the ways that they would choose and adopting a theology, whether they know it or not, that conforms to what they want and to the way they want to live. Lord, if that is any person here, would you arrest their conscience? Would you arrest their hearts this morning? May they see their need for a Savior. May they realize and come to the understanding that you have come, O Jesus, in the flesh to die for our sins. But may they not just remember your first coming, but your second, that you are returning for your people. Oh, may they be counted as one of them. May today be a day of salvation, we pray. Oh, Lord, do your work even now. In our hearts, we pray. Amen. Amen. Church, let us rise and let us sing.